Uh, I, I want to reshare with you one of my favorites, probably not the right word, one of my favorite stories because of how terrible it is. And it happens is there's a friend of mine who was in college his senior year. He went to a very small school, and the uh, mascot was called the Spirits. And so it was the, he was particularly fond of a girl on the women's soccer team. And so on the last game of the year, they were very bad. It was the first year that their school had a soccer team, so they hadn't won any games. And so he decided to do something fun to kind of cheer them up and to show his support. And so before the game, he went to Walmart with some of his friends, and he thought he was going to dress up as a spirit. And so he goes to Walmart, he finds this white bedding bread spread thing that he buys, and so he takes the white bed sheet and cuts a hole in it and puts it on. And then he takes a white pillowcase and cuts two holes on the pillowcase, and uh, he's, they're in the car, they're going to the game, none of the friends apparently thought of how this is going to look. To, look. Uh, to make matters worse, they're a, a predominantly white school, they were playing a predominantly African-American school, and so when they get to the field, they were a few minutes late, and it's a small school, so there's not a ton of people there, and so, you know, they, they park, and they start, and he starts running towards the field, and so the people there can see him. Uh, he's screaming, go spirits, go spirits. He has a pillowcase over his face, so nobody knows what he's saying other than he's yelling, and and of course, pillowcases, when you want, run in the wind, don't stay like a rectangle, right? They kind of do this little, not a rectangular thing, right? And so he's running. Everybody's looking at him like, what is happening? He gets to his friends that were already there. They're all staring at him. And then he realizes, oh, this doesn't look like a spirit. This looks like something else. Now, at this particular moment in time, you have one of two options. Uh, you can turn around and just leave. And just run and just hope that never, you know, to pretend that never happened. Or option two, which is what he chose, he took the mask off so everybody could see who the racist was. <laughs> now, <laughs> that story is awful, right? And, and here's the thing about the story: when, when you realize why he did what he did, you might not be as angry at him, right? Because you know the backstory. He didn't try to appear like someone who was, who's dressed like a KKK member um, because you, you understand what he was doing. Now, you would still say that was a terrible decision, like you should have thought that a little bit better, but at least you would understand where he was coming from. Uh, this analogy doesn't, is not the perfect one, but in the same way this morning as we continue our time in Exodus, we're going to see how the anger of God can actually be a good thing. You see, on its surface, especially in our culture today, we kind of think it's bad and it's wrong, and how can God be angry or wrathful or judgmental? But when we actually understand the reason why, it changes our perspective and how we look at it. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 12. If you don't, there's a black one somewhere around you, and you can take one of those black ones home. If you do not own a Bible, it is our gift to you. We have been in the story of the Exodus, which is, is the story of the Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt, and God leading them out of Egypt into the promised land. Uh, we have just finished the 10 plagues where Pharaoh and the Egyptians would not let the Israelites go. Uh, last week, we looked at the Passover, which is the meal that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples. Uh, and what we now celebrate as communion took place as the Passover meal. And the 10th and the last plague was the, the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt. So now finally, off after slavery and oppression and legalized oppression and genocide against the Israelites, after this 10th plague, the, Isra uh, the Egyptians are finally going to let the Israelites go. And so we'll pick up the story chapter 12, verse 33. This is in the middle of the night uh, after the uh, Israelites had eaten their Passover meal. Uh, many of the Egyptians' firstborns had died, and so Pharaoh and the Egyptians had told the Israelites to leave and to go. And here's what it says, chapter 12, verses 33. It says this, 
Now the Egyptians pressured the people in order to send them quickly out of the country. For they said, we're all going to die. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their clothes on their shoulders. The Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold items and for clothing. And the Lord gave uh, the people such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. In this way, they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites traveled from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 able-bodied men on foot besides their families. A mixed crowd also went up with them along with a huge number of livestock, both flocks and herds. The people baked the dough they had brought out of Egypt into unleavened loaves since it had no yeast, for they were driven out of Egypt. They could not delay and had not prepared provisions for themselves. The time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. And so as God promised, now not only do the Egyptians want are going to let the Israelites leave, they are begging them to leave. This is not a backdoor exit, right? This is for all to see that the Israelites are leaving Egypt. And of course, as, as promised, they are going to get gold and silver and clothes from the uh, uh, Egyptians, which was very significant for their survival on this journey. Uh, they would need this to trade with other nations and people groups that they came in contact with. And so the Egyptians said, take whatever you want, just get out of here. Now, real quick, I want to ma- mention uh, something that's maybe a little bit nerdy, but I think it's helpful in this, uh, as we read this passage. In verse 37, it says there were 600,000 able-bodied men, uh, which basically meant that there were 600,000 men who were able to fight uh, as they left and if they were to run into opposition. Now, the question then becomes, how many people actually left Egypt? If you have 600,000 men, uh, probably about 20 years old and older, that actually would leave you about 2 million Israelites, which is very significant, right? That is a ton of people, not just today, but particularly in this ancient of a culture. Uh, And so what are we supposed to do with that? Were there actually six or actually two uh, million men that left? Um, This is just a side note. Uh, uh, The word Aleph, which is translated here as thousand, uh, can actually be translated multiple ways. And actually in the Old Testament itself, it's sometimes translated as thousands. As we see here, most English translations have in verse 37, 600,000. Sometimes it's translated cattle as a grouping of cattle. Sometimes it's translated as clans or families or tribes or like extended family units. And so all that to say in the Old Testament, Aleph can mean multiple things. And for example, if in this instance, it's not actually thousand, but maybe uh, tribes or clans, or you could think of maybe extended family units would have been different, differing sizes between, uh, depending on how big the families were, you could have 2 million people. Or if you took about 12 to 15 uh, able-bodied men in an Aleph or in a tribe or in a clan of an extended family unit, that would leave you about 12 to 15 men. Now, this is a lot of math. Don't worry. I Googled it. I didn't do it myself. Um, but if it's actually six th- or 600 tribes instead of 600,000, that would actually leave you with about 7,200 men of fighting age, which would leave you somewhere around 20 to 30,000 Israelites total. Now, Here's the thing, regardless of how many left, it doesn't change the point of the story at all. Uh, My personal opinion is I favor the lower number just because of other things that we see in Exodus and some archaeological finds. Of course, the archaeology is so old, it's really hard to kind of base any what actually happened based on the very few things that we have. Um, But it could be up to 2 million people. It could be up to 20 to 30,000 people. Just wanted to share that. Um, But it doesn't change the point of the story. Regardless, that's a lot of people, especially for this time. And so the Israel or the 
Egyptians let the Israelite slaves leave. And so we'll pick up the story, chapter 13, verses 1. We're going to fast forward just a little bit. The, le- the rest of chapter 12, they're just giving more instructions for the Passover meal and how they're going to celebrate it in the years to come as they celebrate this exodus. And so they leave, uh, they get ready to go. And at chapter 13, verse 1, we'll continue the story. Here's what it says. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Consecrate every firstborn male to me, the firstborn from every womb among the Israelites, both man and domestic animal, is mine. So, so as we've seen here, the firstborn, not only is it significant in ancient culture, but it's also significant throughout Exodus. We see if you were here when we started this journey, uh, Moses' own firstborn son wasn't circumcised, so that was a problem. Uh, the Egyptians, uh, God calls uh, the Israelites his firstborn. So when he goes to, when Moses goes to Pharaoh and God said, this is my firstborn, in other words, this is the, the people that I'm going to bless and give extra honor and blessing to from which the Messiah eventually will come to bless the whole world and the and the ancient culture, the firstborn was very significant. Um, And then, of course, we see the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians, which would cause the Egyptians to finally let God's firstborn, the nation of Israel, go. And so the firstborn is a very significant thing. And so here he's telling the Israelites to consecrate, essentially, uh, to set apart not only their firstborn animals and flocks, but also their children. Now, later on in chapter 13, it gives more details. Uh, So they would actually sacrifice their animals. They, of course, would not sacrifice their children. Uh, There was a process of redeeming or buying back their firstborn. Again, the point of all of this was simply to recognize that everything was God's, right? You give God's your first, you give God your best, and it kind of symbolizes that everything is his. Now, one of the best definitions I have found for consecration to maybe make this more real is this. It'll be on the screen. It's that consecration can be thought of this way. It's taking something that is ordinary and setting it aside for holy purposes, Taking something that is ordinary, like the Israelites, there was nothing special about them. They were an ordinary people and setting them aside for a special or holy purpose. And that's what holy means. It means set apart. Now, to give you a practical example, maybe to make this more real, especially with Thanksgiving coming up, uh, some of you, for example, will consecrate your food. And here's what I mean. Those of us that are normal, when we have a plate of food, Thanksgiving or otherwise, you know, you have your plate and you eat something, you know, eat a little bit of something here, a little bit of something there, and eventually you finish. But some of you are kind of the weird people where you consecrate your food and not only do you not let it touch, right? You also eat all se- a whole section at once before you go to the next thing. So who does that? Just a show of hands. You separate your food and you eat all of one thing, okay, before you go to the next thing. That's kind of weird, but that's okay. Now, what I also realize is that not only do some of you do that, but some of you, uh, you, take, you, you save the best for last, which I, I don't fully understand because when you're hungry, like you're, you only have so much stomach space. I don't know if that's like the scientific term, but that's how I you know, kind of view it. And so if you save the best thing for last, you might not be that hungry. But regardless, I realize some of you save the best thing for last. Who does that? Okay, some of you. Okay, and then not only that, I was told that some of you like save the, less, the last bite for best. So not only do you have like the best food item for last, you somehow like calculate in your mind what the best bite is going to be. Now, uh, someone in, uh, at New City Church, and I won't give their identity away, but they're on staff and their name is Abby, uh, told me <laughs> that not only does she do this, but the last thing she eats for Thanksgiving is green bean casserole. What? <laughs> what? what? Here's the thing, guys. Here's the thing. When it comes to feasts like Thanksgiving, 
what you do is you don't get some of everything. You get the best things because you only get these things certain types of years. So for, for me, for example, if there is something green, it is not on my Thanksgiving plate. I want browns and oranges and yellows. That's all I want, right? I can eat that green stuff some other time. I want the best stuff for that, right? So again, hopefully that makes it real for you. That's taking something ordinary, green bean casserole, you could say subordinary, and making it special. Now, all that to say, what, the, what God is seeing here, what we're seeing throughout Exodus, is that we, the people of God, are a consecrated people. Ultimately, the Israelites, and then those of us that are now followers of Christ, we are a consecrated people. We are a people who are set apart by God to love others and to uh, share his grace and mercy to the world. Again, Israel was God's firstborn, and so he set them apart to be a light to the nations. And then ultimately in the New Testament, it tells us that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. And so those of us that are followers of Christ are now been because of the sacrifice and the grace and mercy that God has extended to us through Jesus, we are now a part of the people of God. It's why in Romans chapter 14, verse 8, it'll be on the screen, uh, Paul says this, he says, if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. This is what it means to be set apart or consecrated, right? And so in other words, what this does is this impacts how we live, right? If we, if we view ourselves as a consecrated people, those of us that are followers of Jesus are set apart, then this ought to impact how we live, how we interact with other people, how we think of ourselves, not that we're better than or more awesome than anyone else, that we have just seen that we need the grace of God. And as his representatives on the earth, we are going to extend his mercy to other people. Whether we live or we die, we are a consecrated people. And that is what the symbolism of consecrating the firstborn for the Israelites was set to accomplish. And so verse 3, chapter 13, we'll continue the story. Here's what he says next. Then Moses said to the people, chapter 13, verse 3, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day when you came out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. For the Lord brought you out of here by the strength of his hand. Nothing leavened may be eaten. And so now they are leaving. God is going to lead them on a very long journey to the promised land. And the point is that they will continue to celebrate this Passover meal. It's a seven-day feast, as we saw a little bit last week. Every year, they're going to celebrate the Passover meal in remembrance of God's grace. And so if we continue in chapter 13, he then gives more instructions about the Passover. He gives some instructions on what it, looks, what it means to redeem or to buy back your firstborn son. And then it says this in verse 14. We'll skip down a little bit. Chapter 13, verse 14. It then says this, after more instructions about the Passover and, the con and consecrating the firstborn, it says this, in the future, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, by the strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of this place of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, born, uh, both the firstborn of humans and the firstborn of livestock. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord um, all the firstborn of the womb that are males, but I redeem all the firstborn of my sons. So let it be a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead, for the Lord has brought us out of Egypt by the strength of his hand. In other words, what we see here is not only are the people of God a consecrated people, but we are also a people of 
remember, remembrance, right? We remember what God has done, which, is, which will encourage us to remain faithful to him in the future. Now, remembrance throughout scripture means a little bit differently than what we think of today. Typically today, when we think of remembering something, we kind of reduce it to just like an intellectual, like, oh, I remember that happened, and we don't really do anything with it. Uh, but, but throughout scripture, remembrance is not passive. It is always active. So for example, when it says that God remembered, particularly in the Old Testament, that he remembered his people, or he heard them crying out, you know, we read this and we're like, does God like forget? That's kind of weird. How does he remember? But throughout scripture, what that means is that God is going to act. It's not that he forgot and now he remembered, but remembrance means it's, it's an active thing. It means that you do something. And so they would do this Passover as an act of remembrance. Now we in our lives today, I think all of us have certain days in our lives that are days of remembrance for us that cause us to feel certain emotions, or maybe we do certain things to remember. And some of these things can be really exciting days. And some of these days could be difficult days. And so there's a, I'll give you a couple in my life that are kind of significant days of remembrance for me. Uh, one would be on is the day June 27th. It was the day when I was 19 years old um, that my dad died. And so when June 27th comes, it's not a normal day for me. Uh, it's kind of a sad day. It's a reflective day. Uh, I kind of think of how things would be different if he was still here, right? It impacts my mood for the entire entire day. It's not just a random day. It's a day that causes uh, me to, to live differently on that day. It's a day of remembrance for me and you as well might have some of those difficult days in your own life. And we also have good days. And so, uh, for example, May 28th is also a day of remembrance for me and for my wife when we, were, when we actually think of it because it's our anniversary. And I say that because this isn't just me. She forgets as well. Like, uh, we, like pretty much half the time we've been married, it's like we don't even know. And I'll give you a practical example of this. My grandmother, she does this well. I don't know how she does this, actually. Uh, but she remembers well in the form of she writes a, she mails you a card for everything. So for birthdays, for holidays, for anniversaries. And I'm like, how do you even know? Like, we don't even know our anniversary. And so a couple years ago, we get a letter, again, in the mail from her. And it was like, your anniversary. And it was like, oh, our anniversary is this week. Like, we didn't know. However, this coming May, we're going to be married for 10 years, and so we are celebrating it. That's right. That's awesome. We are actually going to remember it because we're going to go to Disney. That's right. And yes, the kids ain't coming, okay? <laughs> the same for them. This is for us to have a good time. We're not celebrating our vacation. We're not giving our vacation to the kids, okay? And so we're going to go to Disney. Hopefully it's still open and things are okay. Um, and we've already told Finley, our oldest daughter, that when she is 10, she will go to Disney, okay? So she can't go yet because she's not going to remember it, okay? So when she's 10. So we're going to remember, or, you know, we're going to do something. It's going to be exciting. Or for example, uh, May 14th, that's my birthday. And so if you want to buy me Jersey Mike gift cards, if you want to remember that day in May, that is what you can do, right? I'll give you one more, April 2nd. April 2nd, 2017 is the, uh, was the launch Sunday of New City Church. And so the first uh, Sunday of every year, or of every April, first Sunday in April of every year, unless it's Easter, because I guess that's more important. We'll do it the next Sunday. Um, it is more important. Okay, that, that is more important. But we, like, we have a video. We kind of celebrate and we remember God's faithfulness and how he planted and started New City Church and allowed us to take a small part in what he's doing in our city. Right? And so the Israelites actually ended up with a number of festivals, not just Passover, to cause them and to allow them to 
remember. Now, to be fair, uh, us as Protestants, so if you're here, we're, we're not Catholic, we're not Eastern Orthodox, we don't do this very well, right? This is something that we could certainly learn from our other brothers and sisters and other Christian traditions, uh, various things that they do throughout the year to remember God's faithfulness. Uh, and so Advent is coming up in December, so that is a time of, of remembrance that we can do. But there's various things we can do because we are a people of remembrance. And so we'll continue the story, uh, chapter, sorry, uh, next verse in, in verse 17 of chapter 13, right? So there were people of remembrance. He, 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 the Israelites are supposed to tell their children, this is why we do these things, to remember God's faithfulness. And then it says this, chapter 13, verse 17. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby, for God said, the people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So he led the people toward the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness, and the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. I just want to point out here really quickly the kindness of God. The kindness of God. What it says is he leads them away from the quicker route. He takes them the long way. He takes them the slow way because he knew at this point in time, they have no military training. They've never been on their own. They've never been a free people. If they faced opposition too soon, they would turn back and head to Egypt. Now, again, even though Egyptian, Egypt, Egypt uh, was terrible for them, and it's all they had ever known, and it's all any, any living Israelite had ever known uh, was Egypt. They didn't know anything different. They didn't know where else to go. And so if they faced opposition too soon, they would return. Turn. And so God led them the, lower, the slower way, the longer way, so that he could begin to shape and to mold them into the people of God that he wants them to be. And, and I think this is a, an important life lesson for us as we see what God does to the Israelites to remember that some of us here today uh, may be in a season of life that is particularly difficult. You may be facing something that you wish would go quicker, uh, that God would take you another way. And what we see happening here is that even though it is hard, and even though you have every right to long for things to be different, sometimes God will, oftentimes rather, God will not take you the quick and easy way that leads to your destruction. He'll take you the, the slow and the long way uh, so that he can shape you and give you the opportunity to grow closer to him. And he does this because it cares for you. Now, I think all of us have times in our life where we didn't want to wait, and so we try to press forward on by ourselves, and things didn't go well. But what we see happening here is that God moves slower, slower than we would like. However, what we also see happening here is that God doesn't move slowly. See, God doesn't move slowly. And what, what this means, and I think all of us, including me, have been guilty of doing what I just said, right? Sometimes we say, well, God moves slow, right? We say, you know, we have our, our, our desires and our dreams and our hopes, and God doesn't move on our timeline. And so we say things like God's time, for example, might be slower than ours. But the problem with saying that is that when we say that God moves slowly, we have to ask the question, according to whose perspective, right? According to whose perspective, right? If we're saying God moves slowly, it means that we think that he should move faster. But why should what we think, or why is the timeline that we assume be the timeline that he should actually take? What if that God does not move slowly at all? 
right? What if he actually moves the exact right pace that is necessary and that in our impatience, we can miss what God wants us to do? See, the reality is that God doesn't move slowly. He moves the exact space, pace that is needed to accomplish his mission and to allow us to lean in and grow closer to him. I kind of liken it like this in the summertime. Oh, we go to the pool, Christina and I and our two kids. And when we decide to go to the pool, sometimes it's planned. Sometimes it's like, let's just go to the pool. Um, for me, it takes all of two minutes, right? I put my bathing suit on and I'm like, let's go. And then I'm sitting around because we don't leave for another 15 minutes. Why? Because Christina has to put the kids' bathing suits on. Uh, she has to uh, put their sunscreen on. Uh, she has to pack the bags so that we go to the YMCA, they blow the whistle every hour. And so if you don't have snacks, the kids like won't get out of the pool and they won't like that. And so she takes a lot longer. Now, for me, I'm just like, let's just go. We'll figure it out when we get there. It's not a big deal. And we go slower. And so when we get there, the kids aren't burnt. They actually have their bathing suits on so they can swim. And they're excited to get out of the pool, right? From my perspective, it's taking forever. But from the, real, the true perspective, it's taking as long as it's supposed to take. Now, I promise you I'm a good dad. I'm not always that lazy. I was just, I'm just a little patient sometimes when it comes going to the pool, right? What happens is when we actually get to the pool, because the adequate time was taken, we actually have a good time while we're there. And if I was just like, let's go, the kids would be upset. They'd be coming home. They don't want to go to the pool again because they would be burnt. It just would not be a good time. And we have to remember, as what we see God is doing here, that oftentimes God will move slower than we would like, but he does not move slowly. He's inviting us to know and to trust in him because he has things planned uh, that, we, that we can't even understand and fathom. And so again, we'll pick up the story, verse 19, or verse 19. Here's what it says next. It says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an all, a solemn oath saying, God will certainly come to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you from this place. They set out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of a cloud to lead them on their way during the day and a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel by day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. Uh, and so Joseph, 400 years earlier, is really the reason why the Israelites ended up in Egypt. Uh, he, was, he was sold into slavery, and then he became a very, through a long series of events, uh, became a high-ranking official in Egypt. Um, Egypt went through a famine, and so he kind of helped orchestrate that. And a lot of people came to Egypt to buy grain because they didn't have any, uh, including his family. And so his family eventually moves down into Egypt. There was only 70 of them, as we saw in the beginning of the book of Exodus, until so they grew exponentially as God gave them grace and favor. And so when Joseph died, he was holding on to the promises of God. And he said he knew that one day God would give them a land for their own. And when that happened, he wanted the Israelites to take him with them. Now, uh, Joseph would have been embalmed as a high-ranking official. So they actually would have had his remains. And what he's essentially saying is, go with me. I'm holding on to the promises of God. And if you don't take me, I will haunt you. Right? That's what it's saying here at least Dylan's translation, okay? So he says, take me with you or I will haunt you. And we also see here this pillar of fire, this cloud that would direct the Israelites on their journey. And I think this cloud is really cool, right? At least we think it's really awesome because it tells them where they are supposed to go. The only thing that we might forget about the cloud is like, unlike us today in our phone, we got our GPS, you know, and it like takes you around. Like, have you ever been somewhere where you've been there like once or twice, but you can't quite remember how to get there. So you put it in your GPS and it takes you 
your route and you're like not quite sure, you're like, am I really supposed to go this way? And so you like click the button and it gives you like the detailed like turn by turn directions. Um, that's not what they had here. They had a cloud that was very confusing and they had no idea where they were going. Right, So even though they were following, it was still a day-by-day -day trust in God because, and as we're going to see, they were confused and even frustrated because this cloud did not seem to be going the direction that they would want to go. And so just as a side note, we've seen this throughout Exodus. It's a reminder to us that while we want answers, what we really need is a relationship. While we want God to simply tell us what to do, when to do it, and how everything is going to work out, ultimately, more than that, we need a relationship with God. He's inviting us to trust and to follow him, not just in this one particular season of life or, or, or struggle that you are certainly currently in or situation that you are currently in, but for the long haul. It's not just about today. It's about growing in a relationship with Jesus and trusting him in the good times and in the bad. And so we see this and we think that must be nice. But it was still a day-by-day -day trust. Again, it's a reminder that although we want answers for how everything is going to work out in our life, what we really need is a relationship. And so God in his grace and kindness does not often reveal those things to us so we can see and experience more of him. And that's what's happening here. And so chapter 14, uh, we'll pick up the story, verse 1. And uh, chapter 14 really is uh, the stuff movies are made of. Literally, okay, because it is the parting of the Red Sea. This is one of the most iconic uh, scenes, not just in Exodus, but in all of Scripture. And so here's what it says, chapter 14, verse 1. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea. You must camp in front of Baal-Zephon, facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say to the Israelites, They are wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. So just real quick, I just think this is pretty awesome. Right? He, he basically causes them to wander in like a circle for about 42 to 78 or 48 to 72 hours so that for one last time he can display his glory, not just to the Egyptians, but to the world as they hear that this slave group of people, these Israelites, left and defeated the most mighty nation on earth. And so they're wandering around in a circle for a little bit or what seems to be they're going nowhere. A Pharaoh and his, and his leaders and his officials see what's happening. And so they decide to go attack the Israelites and make them come back to Egypt. And so that's what they do in the next couple of verses. They get their chariots ready. They get their army ready. They get their generals ready, their soldiers ready, and they come and pursue the Israelites. And so we'll pick up the story in verse 10. So chapter 14, scroll down or look down to verse 10. The Israelite, the Egyptians are chasing after them. Here's what it says, verse 10. It says, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and the Egyptians were coming after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, it is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What, ha what, you ha what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what, you to what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians will see you today. You will never for the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. 
And so what we see happening is the, Egypt, the Israelites are already complaining because it seems like they're going nowhere. Now, to be fair, that makes sense because it's like they, this mighty act. They kind of plundered the Egyptian. They got their livestock and their families, and they're not going anywhere, right? It makes sense that they would be complaining, but it also shows the, our human nature, right? As soon as God uh, delivers or blesses or saves us or gives us something that we have been asking for or desiring, the next day we are so quick to forget his faithfulness and already focus on the next thing or already complain because he's not doing other things the way that we want him to do them. And so what God then tells Moses, again, and the Israelites, is that he will protect them. And so he tells Moses to, st to, st uh, to stand up and to raise his hand and his staff over the sea that they are currently boxed in by, to stretch his hand over them so that, the, that they can pass through it. And that when he does so, there will be a mighty wind uh, that will part the sea so the Israelites can go safely through and continue on their journey before they can be destroyed by Pharaoh. And so we'll read that next, uh, scroll down or look down to verse 19. We'll see the most, one of the most iconic uh, passages in Scripture unfold before us. And so here's what it says. Verse 19, Then the angel of God, who was going in front of the Israelite forces, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud uh, moved from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptian and the Israelite forces. There was a cloud and darkness. It lit up the night, and neither group came near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry land with the waters like a wall to them on their right and on their left. So just as a side note real quick, sometimes we see depictions of this happen uh, in movies or various other uh, cases of what's happening here. And in some of these depictions, it has like the Israelites barely making it out. It's like they're coming out of the water and like just as the last person gets out of the water, like the, the, the chariots are just behind them and the water comes crashing down. And I always thought that was kind of weird because you have like people and goats and young children and families and you have like this Israelite or this Egyptian army with soldiers and chariots. Like how could they barely not make them? Like doesn't make sense. They're much faster. Uh, I just think it's interesting here. What we see happening is that there was the, the pillar of fire, the cloud went behind them. And so for whatever reason, the, the Egyptians, maybe they were afraid or they just wanted to wait until there was more visibility, did not attack the Israelites all day or all night, which gave them plenty of time to walk through this water. Now, as a side note, yes, this is still supernatural, right? Yes, it's just like, how did this actually happen? But one of the things that I've realized is that sometimes when we are children, uh, we hear these biblical stories, right? But then we never read them for ourselves as we get older. And so we, we think that the scripture is kind of like too hard to believe, and we don't actually take the time to read it for ourselves. Or we think things that ha are happening, that they're not actually happening. And so, for example, when you see they actually had all night to cross the water. Of course, that's supernatural. And of course, we still have questions, but it makes a lot more sense than they were just trying to, all 20,000 of them or 2 million of them were trying to get through the water and you have like these babies and these goats that won't come and somehow the chariots don't make it in time. That's not what happened, right? Scriptures actually gives us more detail behind the story and that's what happening is happening here. And so they had all night, they get through the water and then verse 23, here's what it says next. It says, the Egyptians set out in pursuit, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and went into the sea after them. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. 
He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. When the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The water came back and covered the chariots and the horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and, the Israel, and, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw with great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. And so what we finally see happening here is the evil brought by the Egyptians is over. Uh, they're not turning back, and the Egyptians are no longer going to pursue them. Now, this is weird for us, right? Because in our culture today, this idea of a God of judgment it makes us uncomfortable, right? We're not quite sure what to do with his wrath. It kind of seems like it's anti-love and what are we supposed to do with it? Uh, but we have to remember again, in the storyline of which this is being told to us, we are a consecrated people, right? The Israelites are a consecrated people. And now those of us that are followers of Jesus are a consecrated people, which means that it is actually God's judgment that allows us to be people of love and compassion and grace towards our enemies, it's because God is a, judgment, a judging God and he will one day right every wrong and evil will not, be, will not go unpunished at the end that we are actually free to live with love and grace. In other words, God's judgment frees us to live in love with love and grace. It's his judgment that frees us to do this. Otherwise, we just try to say, be a kind person, be a loving person, but we don't really have any reasons to do that. In other words, when things go bad for us or when things don't go the way that we want, when, uh, when, when, vote, when our politician doesn't make it into office or when somebody wrongs us or when somebody does something that we don't like to us, if this is all there is, grace and compassion should not be our response. But if we have a God who is over all things and is above all things and will one day right every wrong, then judgment is no longer about us and what we have to do, that we can trust and we can love him. It's like what Paul says in Romans 12, it's the last thing we'll read, uh, Romans 12 verses 18 through 19, he says this, he says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance belongs to me. In other words, again, that God's judgment leaves us to, with, to live with grace and love. In other words, because of the gospel of what Christ has done, the good news of the gospel is not that just that God loves us and gives us forgiveness and grace and mercy, but then we can go and extend that to other people, right? If we are a people who, despite our own decisions and despite things that have happened to us and despite our blowing it and despite things not going in our life the way that we want them to go, to know that God still loves us and cares for us so much that he sent his son to do for us what we could never do, to do for us what, what Israel could never do, which is perfectly uphold the law. It now frees us, instead of being a people of vengeance and anger and wrath and malice, to love people, to extend grace, because God has extended grace 
to us. Of course, this does not mean that if, they're, if you're in an unhealthy relationship or you're being abused or hurt by somebody that you keep going back to them. But it does mean as you separate and go other ways uh, and as you maybe kind of change the relationship that you might have with this person, that you can still be a person of love and grace because God has done this to us. In other words, it's not onto us. It's not about us paying people back, but instead we can demonstrate the grace that God has given to us through Christ. And the invitation is to go and give this grace to other people, that God loves us. He forgives us. He does for us what we could not do for ourselves. And we see that in the coming of Jesus, that God in flesh among us, as we celebrate the Advent season here coming up, and some of us are already listening to Christmas music, because as you know, Thanksgiving does not have music. And so there's no reason to wait. Okay. We do do this. Not, we, we celebrate Christmas, right? Not just because it's fun, because of what it represents. That Christ came, that God came, and it's not just that he came, but he came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's the reminder that the perfect God-man has come into the world to take death and destruction and evil on his shoulders so that anybody who would trust and receive and know the goodness of Christ can therefore be freed to live, in, to live with love and grace to other people. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, and as followers of Christ, those of us that have experienced his grace, we can give grace to others. Let's pray.